Are we going to do like three, two, one, and then go? <laughs> we're live already, bro. All right, we're live already. Show number five. Uh, before we get started here, uh, we did just want to take a quick minute to uh, talk about something a little more serious. Yeah, the passing of Aiden Weber. He was very sad. I was extremely sad the other day, and I cried qu- quite a bit that day thinking of the passing of Aiden Weber. He was a really good kid. Um, he was our national champion and junior last year. Yeah. Uh, we traveled. We actually... Me and you both spent quite a bit of time with him because we ended up traveling around um, Canada with him to some races along with Team BC, so we kind of got to know him that way. Yeah, I was uh, he was on the S team, so back when I was on the S team, I rode oh, with right. him a lot too. Yeah, yeah. Part of the Cycling BC uh, Provincial team and then also part of our Next Gen team, so he was a good kid, always funny. Always, always funny. funny. Always, always up for a laugh. Always had a good smile on his face, and he was very polite and respectful to like you know, we were all obviously older than him on the team. Mm-hmm. He was very polite and respectful always. And I always liked joking around with him. And it was kind of fun to hang out with him because him and, you know, Ryan Tugas and those guys, they would all joke around like as teenagers would. And it was just kind of funny for me to like observe the dynamic. It's kind of cool. And yeah. they were always, you know, like I said, really, you know, Aiden was really polite and respectful to us. And he passed away in a work accident this past Sunday. And we got the news Monday and it's it was devastating. So... We're sending our love and thoughts to the whole entire Weber family and all of, you know, anyone close to him. Yeah, the rest of the BMX family too. I know it's hard for a lot of people here in Vancouver, Canada, and I'm where he's from. So, yeah, our condolences to them. Yeah, hope you're, you know, enjoying all the junk food up there, buddy, and pristine dirt jumps, all the ones you can ride. So, we're thinking about you and you're greatly missed and loved down here. Yeah, love you, buddy. So, so in other news, our other camp news. dates are out. We officially got the camp dates out. Is it today? We're gonna. I think we're gonna post about the flyer tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. So you guys will see it tomorrow. We're gonna give you a little inside scoop then of when the camp dates are, though. So the first one I'm doing by myself. It's in Kamloops BMX, and that's May 18th and 19th. And then myself and James. Yeah. Then we go to summer Edmonton. Camps. Summer Sum- camp. This is the summer BMX camps. Then we go to Edmonton BMX on June 15th and 16th. Then from there to Cochrane BMX, August 20th and 21st. And then to Red Deer BMX, August 24th and 25th. So a busy, busy August. It is. I'm excited yeah. to do those Alberta camps again because <clears throat> it was our first kind of crack at them last year. And we had a lot of good fun and we had really good turnouts to the camps. And uh, we're looking forward to heading back to Alberta to uh, do it again. I think after doing it for a year, we'll, uh, we'll be able to kind of see how things went and maybe, you know, adjust some things going forward this year. Yeah, it's fun. Like, hopefully we'll get some of the same kids at a couple of them too because... It's always fun to see if some of the stuff you taught them last year has actually kind of helped them progress all the way to now next year. So that'll be pretty interesting to see. No, I never used to do them because I, I've always had like some uh, social anxiety and I used to be really scared to talk in front of people. <laughs> yeah. Literally the only reason I didn't do camps before is because I used to be really scared to talk in front of people and now we've got a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now we're doing it as like, you know, a fun gig. Now we're doing it as a fun gig, I know. So yeah. how's it going, James? Uh, I mean, it's going well. I've been home for... A while now, but actually haven't really been able to ride outside since at all in March. So that's kind of sucks. But we went down to, was it uh, Burlington? Went down to Burlington to do some riding yesterday, which is like an hour and a half away probably. We may ride outdoor tomorrow. We may ride outside finally. (coughs) The the snow seems to be gone. Snow is balling us up big time. So it's going to go from like snow to 20 degrees this weekend it's seriously supposed to get so much nicer springs here baby we can finally go go right outside we can play some golf okay we don't have to wear four layers of you know coats to try to go outside which leads me to our rant we're gonna do our rant early i want to do right now 
our freaking SoCal friends. <laughs> so all my friends in SoCal, you guys are a bunch of wimps. <laughs> oh my God, it rained like three days this month. I don't know how you guys survived such a harsh winter down there. It's a joke. <laughs> oh my God, I can't do sprints today. I got like an inch of rain. It's so wet. Oh my God, you SoCal people. Harden up. Harden up. We're over here. I had to do sprints in the snow the other day. I looked outside. It starts snowing. I was like, shit, I got to do my sprints. And then we're just like, well, all right, sprints up. <laughs> we're a few extra layers. Here we go. Oh, my God, you SoCal people. I hate you. <laughs> hate you all. Every time I talk to Bob down there, he's always complaining about having to work on the track, you know, because it rained again. Oh, you know, my like, God. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. Go ahead. He's always telling me that. You know, we do that all the time. <laughs> well, I see one more of my SoCal friends post about, oh, sun's back. I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> Let him know. Let him hear it. Let him hear it. So now that we're finally going to be able to ride outside, I'm getting a new S squared. Are you? I'm getting a new S squared. Nice. My answer back to S squared. Answer back to S squared. Give us some details. What kind of color? I'm thinking black, just like my color of my soul. Care? Yeah. Match my soul. That'll match nicely. That'll match your, very nicely. Your new Lulu helmet. That'll match. It'll look, it'll look frisky for sure. Um, so I'm thinking black. Yeah. Order from Blake. What color uh, sticker combo? Gonna, mur- gonna murder it out. I like that. But the sticker, uh, the stickers will be white, I guess, on the escort. You, sh- you should do black. I saw somebody with black. Black on black? Sticker. I know. And it sounds like you wouldn't be able to see them. Never thought of that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, People's, Straight People's has it. There's yeah. a slight white outline of the stickers, probably. Mm, his are just, I think his are all black, but you could do like a really? slight outline. It was, it was interesting because you could still tell it was an S squared. You could see the stickers, but it was. The murdered out looks, yeah. looks probably dope. Yeah. Yeah. Good option now. All the all black bike always looks clean and fresh. So true. Yeah. So we had an idea from Sylvan, Andre, do a little social media check in each week. Oh yeah, he did say this. He did say this. Do we bring up? Do we? Bring I think it's a good idea. Yeah. So obviously the one making headlines in BMX right now is Bethany Schriever's GoFundMe page. Oh yeah, this is a good one we can talk about. Yeah. So apparently, so we don't know the whole story. Mm-mm. We don't know the whole story. What happened with British Cycling or Bethany? But apparently, um, she's not funded, and it's gonna cost a lot of money for her to go to the olympics obviously and it just kind of got me thinking how many people like spend money to go racing in the especially the world cup and how expensive it is yeah it's crazy for us like as canadians if we get you know good enough results the year before we do get some funding through the year that goes directly to us but we use that money obviously to pay for our trips so say so for us going to europe for the first three world cups of the year we're spending well for most of us we're spending over half our budget on one trip so it's a little scary so to imagine someone like her not having any funding Having to do this all on her own, that that sucks. That's going to be really tough, obviously. So I understand where she's coming from, trying to need or trying to get some extra support from people, um, which to me is just first of all, it's absolutely crazy that she won a World Cup last year, and she has no funding from British Cycling. Yeah, and I don't get it. Like it, obviously, like like I said, we don't know the whole story. We don't. But um, all of last year, she did it on her own, and she just won the junior world title and ended up the year before that. Year before, before this. Oh, yeah, what am I saying? Oh, yeah. mixed up. Last year, she was elite, yeah. Yeah, no, but year before that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Year before. 2017, she won the junior world title, and mm-hmm. last year, she funded herself to all the stuff, too. Yeah. So, crazy. And how many other people do you think are spending so much money to go to the races? It's crazy with, like, no, maybe, like, um, no guarantee, I mean. No, honestly. You know? Yeah, we talk about this a lot. It's like, honestly, there's probably a handful of good people in BMX that are making money right now, making a living. Yep. There's a bunch of people, I'd say including myself, that are doing this because they love it and basically making enough to break even. And then there's a bunch of people that are just, sorry, funny incident off, off screen. Here. I'm eating my, <laughs> it's morning and I'm eating my protein pancakes and I just cut a blueberry and it squirted blueberry juice all over our studio. Yeah, all over the studio. So anyway, as you were saying. Anyway, so yeah, and then there's another, the handful of people that are basically just trying to 
make enough money just to get there even like they don't have enough money to get to these races and having to do a GoFundMe page and I mean personally I don't know if I'm a huge supporter of these GoFundMe pages in the sense that I think they were created for medical reasons people that are in dire need of some money um, not these people that maybe are just wanting to get money for stuff because you see these random pages that are like people trying to go on a trip GoFundMe to go on this vacation it's like no that's not what it's for in my opinion um, but at the same time, you see Bethany doing so well in the BMX circuit, you would think she would have some support. She she deserves some support. You would think she would be able to recruit a sponsor or something, you know? like Someone to help her, yeah. Or I, outside I, sponsor or in industry, I don't know. But I definitely think in Europe, it seems like it's harder for them to get sponsors to help them go to all these races. Maybe it's... I wouldn't even say it's more expensive to get to these races. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And it's really sad because you think... About how many good riders around the world are, like, losing money on the sport. I mean, on the one side, it, it goes to show how much people love the sport and want to do well. But it kind of makes me sad, you know, seeing seeing people struggle so bad in the sport that are, have so much talent, you know. And I've always been a big Bethany fan. Yeah, I have too. She seems like a really good rider. Yeah. I've gone a couple times. Great person. Really cool so. person, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I would like, kind of would like to know the whole situation. We should have her on the show. We should one time. We Just, should have her on the show. One, I want to hear how she's getting to these races, like, say, last year. And two, what the whole deal is with British Yeah, I feel like there's a story that needs to be, needs to be told. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. We've got to talk about this. We skipped over it, but I thought it was kind of funny. Okay, so Tori's telling me the other day, <laughs> oh, yeah. he posted a photo online on Instagram with Savvy, with Savannah, his girlfriend, and he told me he lost followers. I wanted to conduct an experiment. <laughs> and I was kind of doing this from before, too. So I checked my followers before I posted the photo with Savvy. Then I posted the photo with Savvy. <laughs> Check the end of the day, lost 10 followers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. You know, if, you're, if you unfollow me or listen to this, feel shame. <laughs> feel shame. All you I, ladies that are just jealous that he has a girlfriend, <laughs> he's a taken man. And I told Savvy, and she's like, good. <laughs> I hope more unfollow you. <laughs> she doesn't want those ladies following no, me. No, 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 she doesn't. No, yeah. she doesn't. And so, I don't know, I can't remember who brought this up to me. Um... But ch- kind of changing topics. But this was a good debate. That okay, switching US, topics. Switching topics, yeah. I don't, can't remember who brought this up to me, but it's a good discussion. The USA BMX schedule versus the Euro block system. Pros and cons of it. So are you talking like... Like during the, the day, day. During the day schedule. So I honestly can't remember who I was talking to, but they were telling me how... I was talking to them about how, like in USA BMX series, like how it can make the pro series better. And if you look at the European series, they do a block format. So the kids will race in the morning. Mm-hmm. Or certain age groups and the pros will race at a certain time. And I always really liked that because you knew what time you were racing. And you know, like, for instance, we go to USA BMX races. And if you have sponsors or people kind of outside the sport that want to come watch, they'll be like, oh, what time are you racing? We'll be like, uh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> first one was at 11, second might be at 2.30, quarters will be like 6, main might be at like 7.30. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah, you, you, it's hard to tell them. And yeah. how many times do they come? Like, you see parents or people come and they're like... Oh, we just got here. Oh, we missed you. Like, we have no idea when we're going. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, we don't, unfortunately. Well, I guess there is a difference, though, because there's the small hill races where you really don't know when you're going. Yep. But, okay, you just, you're squirting blueberries. Blue can, continue, continue. This is normal. I know. I know. And you, then you have the supercross races where they do actually do a time format for true, us now. True, true, true. Which is better. So it seems like they're, I guess, trying to help. Yep. So they're doing a little bit. But also, yeah, it's hard to say at the same time because we race through the entire day. I know, it's the true. The brakes are still an hour and a half, so you're still racing all day. That is true. And especially in Europe, like, you know when you're going to be racing. So you can have, like, an actual schedule of, you know, the entire block of elites. And I think that makes more sense when you, if you're trying to sell a sport to people, mm-hmm. you know, to watch or whatever. Yeah, at the end of the day, the elites are the, the main show of the sport. So you want to have people in to watch them. You want to have 
let people know when they're racing so they can come make arrangements to watch the show. I agree. But to be honest, okay, I do have a comment where the European runs, they obviously used to be the block schedule, I think. Didn't we hear or I heard that like last year it was different? It was? I think they were going back to just kind of the regular run every like every round, which really sucks. That does suck. That was like a huge positive about the year around. I know. And I, I went to Zolder last year, my first year around there. And to be honest, I'm trying to remember, but I... What was the format? I don't exactly remember. <laughs> I don't exactly remember, which yeah, is it's bad. Been a, it's been a few years since I did one, but that's how they always did it when I did one. Yeah. So I can't remember if they did half and half. But anyways, we ran with kids. I just don't remember how it worked. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think that needs to get figured out a little if, if we want to have a more kind of professional series, you know? I agree. I think it's a lot better having that format. Just so, obviously, yeah, people can know when we're riding. It's better for us, too. It is. Yeah. It is. Well, our first guest, or first. our guest of the show, I should say. <laughs> yeah, our guest of the show, yes. Big but name in uh, the sport. The big, beautiful, bearded man. He is bearded man, yeah. Number 65. Liam Phillips. Excited to talk to Liam. Prince Liam Phillips. Sorry. The king, king of Manchester. King of Manchester, yep. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to him, too. So, uh, should we get him on the show? Yeah, he's had a very interesting career. Yeah, I mean, he really has. He's one of the all-time greats. Yeah, I would say for sure he has won two World Cup titles, a World Championship title, three, yeah. one of the few three-time Olympians. That's unbelievably impressive in That's a sport huge. like ours, and a four-time back-to-back Manchester Supercross winner. That won't ever be repeated. That is just savage. that won't ever be repeated. He walks in there, his penis is just dragging <laughs> along the floor because that's his building. <laughs> that is the King, is the King building. Liam Speedway. It is, yeah, 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 it really is. All right, let's get him on, and uh, we'll chat to him. All right, James, on the line, we got number sixty-five. Like, so give him a good intro here. The, uh, the Prince, Liam Phillips. We got number, yeah, world 65. champion, two-time World Cup champion, yeah. three-time Olympian, yeah. four-time Manchester World Cup winner. The king of Manchester. Liam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, I'm blushing. <laughs> feels, uh, <laughs> feels good. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Eagle. Yeah, just, uh, I'm just getting ready to pack up and we, we fly to Manchester tomorrow, so going, uh, yeah, going home, I guess. Yeah, so Manchester Open, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's a cool race. I did it a few times getting ready for Manchester. That's a, that's a fun one because it's kind of fun racing a World Cup track when it's not a World Cup, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. It practically is a World Cup, isn't it? Obviously, you have all the guys come and, come and race to try and get ready for the World Cup. So, yeah, and usually for the guys in Europe, like the first big race of the season. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's quite exciting. I always used to look forward to it. Um, and I think like the guys that I'm working with now are looking forward to. You know, it's been like I think you know listening to to the podcast. Like you guys have obviously identified that the season in Europe is just so different from the US, and you have you know real a real off season. And this pretty much, you know, barring a few small indoor French races, is is the first race of the season. So yeah, it's quite exciting. That's cool. That's cool. So okay, quickly before we got into things, I had a quick funny Liam story from back in the day. So back in, I think, 2011 or 2012, I don't remember which year it was, in Chula Vista, at the World Cup there, that was my first kind of experience going to a World Cup. And uh, I think, Liam, you were probably just coming back from one of your injuries, I'm assuming, because you were in B practice, I believe. And I remember, <laughs> so I'm on top of the hill, and little me, just not knowing what I'm doing, he did a gate, it was you, Hit. I hit my front wheel on your back tire mid-gate <laughs> and I remember I, you giving me just the look back I think down the hill or something and at the time I was a little kid I don't really know like I didn't really know what was going on I was like I just hit his tire big deal 
And then, so little did I know that completely messes up your entire gait. And in Supercross like that, you have to go all the way back up the hill. You got to wait in line again. I felt like the biggest jackass when I got down the hill. I remember seeing it. I was like, oh, fuck, like that really just happened. <laughs> Mate, we've all been there. That is literally one of the worst feelings ever when you have an hour to do, to do practice. And oh. especially, like, if it was Tula in 2012, I think that was the world, first World Cup of the season. So, you know, again, you, you've, you've gone through your off-season, you're ready to go. And, yeah, if you do five starts and one of them is chalked up as a, as a no-go, you're not in the best, best, best mood, are you? Oh, that's one of the most frustrating things. You just want to kill oh. the guy. Just like, even like when blowing clips, just wasting an effort of going up the hill. Oh. I felt like the biggest jackass. I did it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did it. I did it in Oldsmar like two years ago. I was up for the, the semi the first day. And I was beside like Nick and Corbin and the A-Pros were before us. And I don't know what I was doing, <laughs> but I guess I was too close to the gate. And the A-Pro in front of me did his gate and hit my tire. And it was a semi. And then oh. as he's going down the hill, he legitimately looks behind him. Just, <laughs> I, I felt so I felt so bad. I felt so stupid because I know oh, how boy. pissed I would be. Yeah. And then I hear Nick and Corbin beside me. Oh, why is he turning around? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was my uh, intro to Liam there. Yeah. Uh, uh. Too good. Um, I, I actually, I was actually a bit worried about um, <laughs> about what you were going to say that because, <laughs> yeah, I think you know I've had as I think as we all do, you know, you, you, when you're in that environment, you know, I think um, yeah, Sam was probably the worst for it being a you know I don't know seemed as uh, like he's an arsehole when he's at the track because he's there to race and mm-hmm. yeah, I was a bit concerned about what uh, what that was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good stuff. Um, so how's retired life? Did you, so have you moved to Eggle with the family or what's kind of, what's the deal? Yeah. So, um, so obviously I, I, I stopped racing. Um, I don't know whether you're going to go into that. Um, but we can keep it pretty, pretty brief. Um, I basically, I crashed in Oldsmar at the start of 2017. Um, and then I, yes, yeah, I think it's been pretty well documented. I had quite a few injuries throughout my, my career and I actually, there, in Manchester, there's a there's three guys that have sort of formed a an upper you know upper arm clinic, um, and they're you know very highly regarded. So one specialises in hands and wrists, one's in elbows, and one's in shoulders. And between the three of them, I've kept them in pretty good business over the last ten years. <laughs> and and, uh, and the one guy that does the hands and wrists is, is a guy called Mike Hayton that I actually you know I got so. <clears throat> sort of close to that I ended up having his mobile number so when I crashed in Oldsmar I just sent him a, a picture of my x-ray and and you know if we fast forward um what would have been 10 months on from there you know he pretty much knew from the minute that he saw my x-ray that um that that was pretty much it and you know he never he never alluded to that but I had three six uh three surgeries that were all effectively unsuccessful and, and basically got to the point where um he said to me he was going on holiday and I thought, you know, a normal holiday is maybe a week or two weeks. And then six weeks later, he's still on holiday. And then I had an appointment with him and he was basically just avoiding, you know, avoiding me, um, which <laughs> yeah, I can understand. Um, he tried, even on the day, he tried to push the appointment back. It was in the evening. He tried to push it back to another day. And I just said, no, like I've waited so long for this. Um and I pretty much knew, like, in the bottom of my heart, I knew what he was going to say. And I just said, as soon as I walked in the room, I just said, look, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. Just tell me, like, can I race or not? And he just said no. And I was like, Oof. shit. That's, um, I knew that he was going to say it, but I didn't, you know, until, until those words come out of somebody's mouth, it was like, shit, that, you know, that's it. My physio was there at the time, and she was 
yeah, I think it hit her harder than it hit me because I think I knew really what, um, yeah, what he was going to say. So, yeah, I think you know, there's obviously a bunch of people that know that know that I didn't choose to stop racing. I would love to have carried on, and you know, I'm I just turned thirty, and I feel like I still had enough racing left in me, and I still had a strong enough desire to want to to win big races, um, but. You know, these things happen and um, yeah, I, I basically, I thought, if I'm honest, I thought that's it, I won't, you know, I started to explore other other um, passions, coffee and open the shop and I, and I really wanted to go, you know, into into that industry and do, um, yeah, to do more and more and then I got an, an email from um, the guys here at the UCI asking, you know, what I was doing and if I'd be interested in, in the job here and um my first response was absolutely hell not. <laughs> you know, I, do, I do not want to do that, and that was not because you know I just I saw Tom Ayer go into the races over the years, and like it's, it's a you know it's tough, it's a big job. And then over over the next few months, I um, yeah I started to really miss BMX, and I and I felt like my um, my knowledge that I'd acquired over the years would would effectively you know I think it would put me in good stead to do to do a good job, and I ultimately felt really. Um, lucky to have experienced amazing coaching throughout sort of the last 10 years of my career and I was starting to become more and more aware that there were athletes that weren't lucky enough to receive that and I basically felt like if I was able to 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 sort of give back and, and help a group of athletes um, experience the same sort of standards of coaching that I did then um, yeah why not so yeah I came for the interview and then was offered the job and and pretty much I think I was offered the job like middle to end of January and then I moved here like first of Jan, first of February, like within within like ten days, two weeks. I just packed a car up and I drove and left. You know, Jess and um, Jess stayed at home, and, and we just said we'll see how we uh, see how we go for a year. And now we're you know fast forward a year, had a baby, and um, and Jess moves out in a couple of weeks. So we haven't actually officially like moved. I've you know I've always had my house in the UK, and, and everything's still been based in the UK. But as of as of next week or a couple of weeks, we'll we'll be here and our life will be here. So, yeah, I'm excited. It's really cool. Wow, that's quite a story. Yeah, it really is. Wow. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I, could, I tried said... to condense that as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good like two three years condensed into what a couple minutes. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't say. I'm well aware that I can talk and I can talk, especially when it comes to BMX. I can talk and talk and talk. Perfect. So I'm really conscious <laughs> to make sure that I don't just keep going round and round and round I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep it as concise as possible that's what we like so being the coach of the UCI kind of center of the team now I've always been curious curious how it works to get on that team um, and back in the day I always thought it was basically for countries riders that were a little underprivileged I guess you could say just didn't have the resources but it seems now that you also have some top riders um, coming on to the team as well so can you just allude on how it works to with that program yeah, so I have. I mean, I'm not very PC anyway, um, and I, you know, I won't be in our in our conversation now. But I, I basically, like I said, I, when I was first, you know, the, the opportunity first arose, I basically, I said thanks, but no thanks. I, it wasn't of interest to me because I, my passion lies uh, in high performance and and trying to, you know, just as an example, take a rider that's maybe you know, number five or number 10 in the world and then turning that athlete into into the best in the world. And that's what I really, that's the that's the part of the sport that I really enjoy. Um, so when you look at the programme 
initially it was very much development focused and and like you said under underprivileged or, or, or under resourced athletes so when i first began um conversations here um i said that i really wanted the 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 program to have a bit of a shift in terms of what we were trying to achieve and and for me when you come here and you see you know the standard of facility and, and where we are there's absolutely no reason why the, the program can't have success you know on the high performance level um okay we don't have the sports science and we don't have the things that i've been accustomed to at, at british cycling but you know at the same time there's you know you've got you've got a lot of pieces of the puzzle here that um you know just with put a group of riders together with good facilities good coaching and, and and a good group and you know they should have success so that was my initial my initial um, response was that i wanted it to be more more high performance focused and that sort of links into the president um obviously there's a new president at the uci just come in in the last couple of years and his his vision for the center is is much different than than how it has been and he his aspirations for the center are very different too and he wants it to be more you know, basically high performance focused and, and the centre to be seen as one of the go-to, if not the go-to training facilities in the world. So there's a huge amount of change that's occurred just in the year that I've been here. Um, you know, we've I've been pushing for, obviously, facilities to be, you know, changed and upgraded, which, you know, we get a new gym at the end of next month, which will be, I mean, you guys have probably seen on social media, like the, the gym hasn't been touched for 17 years. And although it does a job, it's got weights and bars and, you know, it's if we want the the centre to be seen as and regarded as one of the best training facilities in the world, then you know, having a having it doesn't need to be flash or you know ultra modern. It just needs to have good platforms with good weights and 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 look like a high performance gym. So there's been there's been a bunch of things that I've um, that I've pushed since I've I've been here, and um, and thankfully everything that I've sort of pushed for has has been. Um, yeah, obviously things take time, but it's been um, yeah, it's, the changes are happening. So um, going back to your original question, um, I, I I I looked at athletes. Just take Simone for example. She's an athlete that has has a lot of talent and, and is able to perform at a really high standard. But because she's from Denmark, she is effectively one of one. They have a program, but they don't have they don't have the numbers in order to have a full-time coach and a track and all of the facilities so she's actually an athlete that um you know we are designed or we are here to help and i think that when you when you understand that the uci center is here solely to support the federations then that sort of allows you know, like that adds all the pieces of the puzzle together we are here to help the federations so um yeah denmark for example they have a good cycling program but you know, we, we can offer something to Simone that potentially she wouldn't have in, in Denmark. And that's pretty much the same across the board. Obviously, Yoshi and Sai are here from Japan. Obviously, Tokyo being the next um, host city for the Olympics. And yeah, there's there's pretty much a reason for every athlete to be here. You go then further down, we've got Cristobal from Chile that obviously that is underprivileged. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, my first year was pretty much spent just actually getting the team together and trying to get a group of riders that understand what I expect and then also, you know, can work well together and enjoy, enjoy, it sounds so cheesy, but just enjoy the, the journey. And, you know, I think back to my time racing, my best memories were, you know, actually turning up to training every day and having a good crap with the lads. That was like, that was the best part. Not the racing. It was, it was actually, that's what I miss now more than anything else. 
No, I, some of the most fun I've ever had is just messing around with the guys at the track or at the races. Some of the best memories you get as an athlete. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so how is it being a coach? You know, you obviously come from um, British cycling and has a very well-established program. So you have a lot of experience as a rider. So kind of making that transition to the coach as a coach, like, was it kind of weird going to the races at first, you know, from the other side or, you know, what were kind of any challenges you, you know, had to overcome at the beginning? Um, it was, if I'm honest, it was almost, it was as I would have expected because I, I, I wanted to do the job because I, I know, I know like where my skill sets lie and I know, you know, that I like to be, you know, well prepared and, and I like to plan and I, you know, and I think that you, yeah, when you have, uh, you know, when you when you have the resources that I have available to me here, like it's all on my shoulders. I have to do everything. I have to do all the gym, and I have to do everything. Whereas at British Cycling, you know, Grant was my coach, and he was working with just me and Kyle and Trey pretty much. And then you know, he then had an S and C just taking care of. You know, I, I basically worked with almost ten individuals. So me and Grant used to sit effectively at the top of the tree, and then below that you'd have nine other members of staff that would provide support when it comes to nutrition biomechanics strength and conditioning you know psychology every every sort of strand of performance that that is required i had access to whereas here um it's just me and that's that's the challenge that's the biggest challenge because you know it it just adds so much to my workload because i took this on on the basis that I would do the best job that I could and I have to be really careful it's been fine the last 12 months because I've just been you know I've been in Eagle effectively on my own without a family so I've been able to just get you know bury my head and and um, do whatever I need to in order to to do the best job that I can that's going to change obviously as as we move forward when Jess moves here and, and Marlo's here because you know, I have to have a, a work-life balance. And I feel like I've used the first year in order to get up and running. Um, and, you know, I think as long as you're well-prepared and you're organised and, you know, I, last year was tough because I I, I joined, I, the athletes joined me the first week of March and then by the end of March, the World Cup season was starting and we were going off racing. So you're on the back foot the whole the whole way through. But um, I really, really enjoy it. I probably get more nervous for the athletes now than I did when I raced. I must admit, that's, that's quite a challenge when you you know when you spend so much time you know looking at their programs and helping them you know in every single department that when they go out and race you know you just want them to do the best that they can and you know i i i'm under no you know i'm quite quite um yeah i guess honest and rational and if if i know that an athlete has the, the capabilities of you know winning or performing really well and they don't, and of course it hurts. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't really feel, you know, I feel at the moment like we're still building and, and I'm not, you know, I'm lucky now that I've got some athletes that I feel can go and win big races. But um, last year we were, we were certainly in a building phase. So yeah, it's different, but it's it's, a, it's great fun too. Yeah, it's a, it's a good challenge for you. It's, uh, it's probably really cool for you to, you know, have so much experience as a racer and then be able to pass on that knowledge. Like, I'm sure that's, that's very rewarding. And, uh, so kind of circling back now, talk about your career a bit. So like you mentioned, you had many injuries. I know you had a lot of injuries growing up and in your elite career as well. And so you, I remember you took 2011 off and switched to track. And it seemed like when you came back to BMX, um, 
in 2012, you kind of came back, you know, better physically, technically, mentally, kind of the whole package. So let's just talk a little about that. Like, what did you, you know, what kind of led to that decision to step away from BMX for a bit? And, and how did you improve yourself like that to come back? Yeah, so th- this is it's a good one because I, I feel like there's, you know, there's a huge misconception when it comes to this. And it's completely understandable. Um, but you know, it's sort of a good opportunity for me to to explain a little bit in as in as short a detail as possible. But basically, from 2010 to 2011, like I changed in that winter, I had you know more change in that winter than I ever had before. I'd gone from you know squatting 150 kilo for a one hour amp to squatting 195 for for three, like in in that off season, and I changed physically like huge, like unbelievable amount and then I went to the first race of the season in 2011 in um, Oldsmar and yeah I I crashed and I I just had a torrid time and basically that for me it was like I just I was continuing to take two steps forward one step back all the time and then um, senior management within British Cycling basically was still looking for a man one for their team sprint and they, they had a really solid man two and man three and they were looking for, for somebody to do that role and, and basically asked me if I'd be interested. And to be honest, it was like, it was a no brainer. It was to compete at a home Olympics with, with Jason Kenny and Chris Hoy. It was like, of course I'm going to go for it. It's a dream but opportunity. After, yeah. Yeah. And then literally after like three months of being on the track, I was just bored out of my brains. I absolutely hated it. It was <laughs> like, I, it was just shit for me. I, I didn't like, um, I love like the contrast with BMX. Like you in the gym, I see that solely as building your engine, then on the track being like a real high technical focus, and like those contrasting sessions of of being you know technical on the track and then physical in the gym. I, I love that. Whereas the track was just uh, the track cycling was just very much physical. Everything was physical, and ultimately like no real technique or technical demand to ride in the track. So I just didn't enjoy it. Um, and so anyway, I then I, I pretty much made my my opinions heard quite quickly. Uh, <laughs> decided, yeah, decided that I it wasn't for me, and I basically stayed on the track just because the season was already already pretty much you know, it was halfway done, and um, and somebody just offered me some pretty good advice. Really, they said like, why don't you just stay on the track and just get like a huge training block done, and you're not you're going to be injury free for eight nine ten months is you're just gonna be injury free and i thought that's pretty good <laughs> advice to be fair <laughs> so uh um, that sounds fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then and then, uh, and then i raced the like track nationals um in the team sprint and then basically the indoor was just being finished in manchester um it was november 2011 so just as i finished on the track the indoor was finished and then i and then i went straight back to bmx and um, I quite liked that that period to be fair because I felt like um, I felt like I was you know, like a boxer right up against the ropes. Like I hadn't raced for almost like two years, you know. Like and yeah, was was coming out having to yeah effectively justify my position on you know within the BMX program. But then not only that, you know, to try and I mean for me, I, I wanted to win the Olympics in my home country, of course. And the reality was, I was miles off you know i remember sitting in a in the office with a the psychologist and he said to grant oh where would you put liam in the world right now now in my mind i was like oh, maybe i'm like 10 or 12 or whatever and he's like oh, i'm not going to answer that and then the psychologist said no no like tell him 
And Grant was like, oh, 35. And I was like, what? Oh, boy. <laughs> Is this guy having a laugh? I was like, I should be winning the Olympics this time next year. So that gave me, like, not a kick up to the backside, but it gave me, like, just a huge, I don't know, like a reality check, but then also just a huge desire to want to improve every single day. And I, it's weird because I, I never needed that as an athlete, but it was, um, yeah, it was really powerful for me, actually. And then... Yeah, pretty much just got back to work at the indoor um, and then, yeah, had a pretty good season. But it's funny, when I listened to Joris, me and my, my psychological approach and Joris's were very similar. Like, there's no way, there's no way that I would have won the Olympics in London. Like, even if, uh, I mean, I had obviously a good start and, you know, it was weird because I made a mistake on the first jump, but it wasn't that, I don't feel like that was psychological. It was just, I think, the fact that my start was so fucking good that I just overshot the jump. But even if I was winning, there's no way I would have won that. I just wasn't wasn't mentally ready to win a big race, and uh, that was pretty much the same at the Worlds that year too. I was uh, I remember watching after the Olympics, watching all the footage back from the Worlds, and just remembering how fast like I watched myself do a start with uh, Mark Willers, and at that time like he was fast, and I I had you know I absolutely destroyed him to the bottom of the ramp, and I was like shit, I was really fast at that race, and that really gave me belief to. Um, that I could that I could win big races, and then obviously the next year I won the world champ. So um, yeah, I think that having that like I think anybody can say that they have the belief to win. Like oh yeah, of course I can win. But I think like having that deep rooted belief is like a different. Yes, yeah, and I just see that with Joris now. Like, and I've seen it with Sam when he was dominant. I think anybody that has huge amounts of dominance is they just have this underlying belief that yeah. I think even with Sylvan, like he knows he can pass people around the track. So. It's um, yeah, it's something that I think is quite a special, and I and I don't think you have it for that long in your career. I think it's quite a quite a unique feeling that I'm sure if you speak to the likes of Stromy and Sam and those guys, they would all, all say the same thing. So that the way you improve mentally like that, like, <clears throat> did that just come with uh, you know doing better at the races, or did you specifically work with um, a sports psychologist like you said or was it kind of a combination of both and you just kind of got in a role and started believing in yourself and started winning more because it seemed like you know you've always been fast and you've always been really competitive but it seemed like 2012 to 2013 and onwards you you were kind of a newly invented rider well I think because um, I think more about this stuff now than when I did when I was racing and I you know, again, I've listened to the podcast since you guys started, and I listened to the other guys, and I and I've taken like I can understand bits from everybody, but like Sylvan said, oh, you know, he he's happy to race for a podium. Now that was my Achilles heel. I was not interested in no podium. I was going there to win, and more often than not, I either won or I or I was injured or got last. Literally, like I was either in it for the win or nothing. And I look back now, and I just think. Like I, sh- I, I should have been potentially a bit more mature and and um, you know just fought my battles a bit better. Um, but I don't know. I, I used to, yeah, I was a bit like very cautious to the wind. Just get stuck in, and if you're going to win, win. If not, sort of yeah, don't worry about it. But I think that my confidence came from honestly from from training at the indoor regularly because we had a we had a timing system that is. You know, super, super, super reliable. Um, obviously, I've just come back there now with the guys. We were there for seven weeks. And I think that it was quite interesting watching them um, because they really, un- like, they understood the power of, like, what that data gives you every single day. And, okay, you can have that data, like, we're having a timing system fitted here in a, in a couple of couple of weeks. But 
it's outdoor, the wind changes, and it's although it's reliable from effort to effort, like you obviously have so many variables with the weather. And I took so much confidence from um, you know training. You know, I, I like training with other guys, but also you know my data was like it's me racing me every single day. And I remember getting on the plane to the worlds like. Um, it's a bit of a funny story because British Cycling always used to pay for our travel, obviously. But um, if if we wanted to, we could upgrade our flight. Um, so you, they'll put, book an economy ticket and then you can just pay the difference to upgrade. And I remember thinking, okay, the world champs in 2014 were in, um, were in Rotterdam and then 2015 were in Zolder. So I was like, sod it, I'm going to pay for an upgrade for, for New Zealand. And it cost me like a couple of grand. And I, was, and I really could not afford that. You know, I was like, it's a hell of a lot of money. But I just thought now, you know, I, I felt like I was in a good enough position to win. Um, and I thought I'd go for it. And I remember doing my last two sessions before I left for the world. And I was I was flying. And I, I remember getting on the flight and I took a picture, of, you know, as you do in your business class seat with your legs spread out. <laughs> you know, and I sent it to my mum. And, um, and I said, um, you know, I, I remember just taking the picture, like, you know, basically like showing off to my mum, you know. And she said, oh, you know, good on you. And I said, I'm going to win. And and I think that even that, like, you know, I would never say anything like that. I certainly would, I, you know, might share that information with my mum, but not anybody else. Um, and, yeah, I think that that was, like, the, the confidence and the belief that I had. And that really came from, from my training environment, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, that humble confidence you have was just, I guess, dominant in the sense that you didn't have to tell anybody, you weren't showing off to anybody, but that belief inside that you knew you were going to race to win, that's something special that only a few people have, I think. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, I, you know, I think back to, and I share, you know, I like, I like talking to, you know, I sat with Yoshi and Christabel at lunch the other day and we just started talking and, you know, I, I like to share my experiences with them. And, um, you know, I think that that's also a key part of what I see my role being. Like I'll, I'll happily be honest with them, and if something's shit, I'll say it's shit. But if if it's good, I'll say it's good. And you know, I, I, you know, I think that you have to have a certain, I guess, character, or, or you have to be a certain type of athlete to deal with, you know, my honesty. Um, but on, but also, I think that's so powerful because if something is really good, then I will say that is bloody good, you know. And um, mm-hmm. I think that I shared with them a story from um, the world in 2015. I. I put a lot into that race and, and again, was super, super confident in, in where I was at. And I remember after practice in Zolder, I was like super confident. And then obviously the whole, the weather and everything changed. And, and if I'm honest with you, I finished fifth at that race and I was absolutely devastated, absolutely devastated. I, I felt like, and I'll still say this now, like I still feel like that was a race that really got away from me. And I don't, I think that that was pretty much one of only that. And Rock Hill in 2015, when I, I had lane one next to Kimmon and I had a really good start and then come on clip. Those are two races that I felt like got away from me. But apart from that, there's no, like, I just got my ass kicked. Any race that I didn't win, I got my ass kicked, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I have, I, I feel like I'm quite you know, logical when it comes to that stuff. I'm happy to say when I think that things could have been different, but then also, like, uh, yeah, there's two races out of however many that I did that I felt like I could have done. You know, I could have won, I didn't. Um, but yeah, I went to, I then went to Sweden and to Argentina, and I won those two World Cups, and that was for me like I 
like it was it was a given. I knew I was going to perform really well there because I prepared really well, and I was still pissed off that I didn't win the worlds. And I was adamant that I wanted to like I wanted to prove to myself and and um, that I was capable of winning that race. And um, yeah, I feel like I should have won. Like Rock Hill would have been the third World Cup on the on the bounce that I'd won. And I remember the semi final being like over a second faster in the semi than anybody else in the in like going into the main and I was like Pap. and then to come unclipped it was like a right kick in the teeth but that's that's also what we love about BMX it's like it doesn't matter how fast you are in the motos or the quarters or whatever you've got to do it when it counts and that's that's what it's about yeah no doubt no doubt I think we also need more hard people in the sport you're talking about you know people having to deal with your honesty and I, I think that's a good thing to have in a coach is people need to harden up a little bit and just take the honesty but uh, so talking about the British program a little bit, um, it seemed like when you're racing and even I guess nowadays too, you guys seem to do, I'd say, less races and try to peak for more or different events, I guess fewer events. Um, do you think that was a weakness or a strength for you guys? Because it seems, in my opinion, that if you're a top rider like yourself, uh, if you're peaking for an event and you go there knowing you're going to win, that can be a very big strength. But if you're more of a let's say a working class guy who's kind of digging in the motos and just battling his way through that can almost uh, hurt them because they're not getting as much race experience. Um, what do you think about that? It's a good question. I think has so many different strands to it. I think that, um, I think there's one side, like I think the BC's philosophies have always been like, why send a guy to a race when, you know, he's going to go out in the motos just for experience or whatever. Like, it's contrary to popular belief the budget within british cycling is like peanuts it really is and we have to make them i had to make the most out of what we had and you know I, i'm not saying that i ever went without anything but honestly compared to like you know the the dutch program like our budget was absolutely peanuts you know and and i think that i i get that philosophy like unless you're going to be going to the races and be competitive um you know why? Why bother? Like stay at home, train, get faster, be put in, put yourself in a position where you can go and be competitive. On the other hand, you need to race in order to gain the experience. So I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, if you want me to be brutally honest, like for me, I was never good enough to go and do. I couldn't do a Sam and race twenty-five weekends a year. There's no way I could do it. And I think that the reason that I was able to achieve what I did was because I actually I could only do like a, a small number of races because i know that i was turning up to every single race absolutely in the best physical shape possible i think i think honestly in my you know from sort of like 2012 onwards i only ever showed up to one race where i just didn't get it right physically and that was berlin world cup in 2014 i all the others like i actually turned up in the best physical shape that i could have and i think that if i was to have done more races then I, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I just wasn't wasn't good enough to do it. Um, do I think now I could have potentially raced? Um, I think that's linked also to to my desires to like it's either win or nothing for me. If I'd had potentially a slightly different mindset and and being able to treat races to get other things from like learn to race try and pass people etc and not go to every race in absolute top physical shape then of course and i think that if i had my time again i probably would have added that into my program um and you know i think i think even that's quite a challenge like i speak to you know i've spoken to some of the riders that i work with now quite a lot about that like we're going to do races that you know they're they're 
they're just going to train straight through and they're going to be flogs. But the idea is that they go and they have to work hard and they have to try and, you know, they have to try and perform at their potential when they are carrying fatigue. And, you know, that's something that I never really had to do. Um, so it's that is one question that honestly we could sit and go round and round and round because, <laughs> you know, we used to, as a programme, we used to sort of laugh at some of the squads that were, you know, sending 10 riders all around the world and they like they're not even making it into the race you know this is when we had the one like one day world cup mm-hmm. and then we just say like what's the point just stay at home save your money train but then on the other hand i think that we could have potentially have, have raced um slightly more so yeah it's, it's i guess it's all part of evolution and and i think it's it's athlete dependent too and i certainly i drove my program like it was me that was deciding how many races i did each year Oh, it was you. Interesting. Yeah, that was one yeah. of the things I wanted to know. Like, if if it was the British program telling you to race less or if it was kind of your decision. So it's interesting that it, that it was your decision. And, um, yeah, I know me and PH used to talk about this a lot. And um, it'd be, like, I was used to, like, preparing and going to race 100%. But often, you know, if I didn't race as much and I went in, like, I might feel really peaky physically and stuff, but I might not feel super sharp in a race. Did you ever feel like you might be physically 100%, but you might just be missing a little, I don't know, that kind of race sense or, or sharpness in a race situation from not racing as much? No, I, I think um, I think that, like, I, I obviously never used to race from, like, say, the last World Cup, and I might I might do St. Etienne every now and again, which is in December, but pretty much wouldn't race until, like, the first World Cup in Manchester in April, and I... I never used to struggle with like being able to perform. Like for me, I, I think that yeah, I never needed to. I never needed to race in order to feel like sharp. Because in all honesty, like my race, my race, I guess I don't know. Strategy was get a good start, hold shot, win the race. That's Repeat. it. You know, <laughs> there was nothing more to it than that. Um, you know, get have a good have a good lap and and be fastest lap time and get good inside lane for the following lap and and I think that yeah, it's quite a, it can be quite a volatile um, strategy. But I think that if you look at if you look at guys that win big races or guys and girls, you look at you know when Mariana was winning everything, it was it's a pretty simple pretty simple strategy really. Um, and although it is one-dimensional, I think that most guys and girls that win those big races, they pretty much follow that pattern. So um, I think it's great watching the likes of like Sylvan and, and Co. Like doing things slightly different. I, I you know, I think it's I think it's great. Um, I just like to base stuff on probability, and and for me personally, that's what works. So yeah, it's, it's a big difference talking about yeah how there's the people in the sport that basically just kind of race to race get it in and then you're basically being scientific about your, what you're doing saying okay i'm gonna peak here i'm gonna be winning this race and we'll go to the next one and do the same no it makes perfect sense it really does <laughs> so, yeah and that's clearly you know you did a good job of that also and at the manchester world cups i mean winning for them there i'm sure you went in there obviously knowing the track really track really well clearly but i'm sure you kind of went in with the same formula and it worked um so it's impressive that you won four in a row at Manchester. Not it's badass. Just, it is. Oh, it's mate, badass. It, makes, it is. But thinking about it. There's, what? <laughs> What'd you say? Makes me it makes me feel sick thinking about it. <laughs> so kind of because let's talk. If, go ahead. Yeah. After after 2016, I just threw the towel in. I said never again. I said if there's a World Cup here in 2017, I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. He's gonna dust the yes off and come back now. <laughs> 
actually. I was going to, uh, I was going to take a picture and all, all my gear and line up on the, on the gate, but yeah. The entire league class can be like, you'll be fucking kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to Manchester anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of year by year in Manchester, like the experiences, obviously being at the same race and you did win, but they must have been different. So let's just kind of talk a little about the, the Manchester World Cups, you know. For instance, the first one was 2013. So it had to be really exciting for that one to be the first one kind of, you know, World Cup at home. And um, yeah, maybe just let's talk a little about the differences year to year. Yeah, so that that first one, I think, um, I think the like London was obviously a, a disappointment for me. But even though, like I said, I never thought that I would win, you know, hand on heart. I think you know I could have potentially have scrapped a, a medal, maybe. But um, yeah, I think that 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 race was always for me just a great opportunity to to you know see again see where I was at, and I. Yeah, that bloody wooden jump, like what a joke that was. And oh, I, that was horrific. That was, that's still one of my biggest frustrations with, um, and that's for me what really should have like kickstarted the whole like commission thing. Which, that was horrible. Um, you know, like I remember, I remember being in a really awkward position that that um, race because I remember knowing that like this is not right. This this jump is killer, and it's just going to destroy the race. It could destroy somebody's career, and and I remember I remember talking to Connor. And when I was talking to him, I remember Johan coming over and he stood in between myself and Connor and he basically just like cut the conversation off and then and then just said, oh, he only wants it changed because it's going to take away like his home advantage. And I was like, and for me, that like that's literally the worst thing anybody could say to me, like how I am as a person. I was like, that's it. I'm, if, I, if I didn't want to win the race bad enough anyway, like that's, that's enough for me to it just lit a match inside me and I was like whatever whatever I need to do to win this race um just because I just hate that I hate that type of mentality like somebody having you know somebody somebody effectively doing something and then thinking as poorly as oh, I I would want to change it because it's better for me like I'm interested in the sport that's you know it's not about me I I, I want the best for the sport so anyway yeah 2013 was um I was always a bit of a sucker for like my bike and how like how I like things to look, and I never forget winning my first World Cup with it. I punctured, and I had a, I did have wheels uh, opposite wheels. I had a green and chrome front wheel and a red and blue back wheel, and that really that still doesn't sit well on me now. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that was a good one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Quickly coming to the bikes, I've always been curious. It always seems like when you're on Yes, it seemed like you had the custom frame, and then when you got on the GT. It also looked like you had custom specs on the bike. And I'm really curious what they were because I have my ideas of what might have been changed. But I'm curious to know if you'll tell us what the changes were and why you made them. Um, so from the, like that yes, is a, that yes is an unbelievable bike. Like so good. And that all, you know, that came like obviously, I mean, we haven't really spoken. This has never been made public either. But like I, I agreed to deal with Chase and, and the deal was that, they would make me a, a bike. I, I basically didn't want to ride a, a bike that I was unfamiliar with so close to the Olympics. So I agreed the deal on the basis that it would make, make me a bike. And Christoph said that he could make it in three weeks. And I was like, great. And I actually had the deal with GT in place. And we were we were going backwards and forwards. And then and then once I signed the letter of intent, they then said, oh, now the bike's going to be 13 more weeks. And I just said, hell no, that's not what we agreed. So anyway, really long story short, the type of person that I am, like if 
I, my word is is as important as anything to me. And if I say that I'm going to do something, then I expect people to stand by it. The fact that that didn't, I just couldn't continue a relationship because I wasn't like for me. Like that's just starting off on the wrong foot. So I then um, I then decided like I wasn't going to do it, and there was like legal threats and action and God knows what. And anyway, um, it meant that I couldn't do the deal with GT either, which like it just knackered me for that whole year. So that's why I rode the bike unbranded and whatnot. Um, so when I went back onto the GT, I just didn't like how like low the bottom bracket was. Um, that was the main thing. I and I've—I mean, this is the simplest way of explaining it for me. I, I'm quite a simple, <laughs> quite a simple <laughs> thinker. Um, but like I, when I rode the GT, I felt like with the really low bottom bracket, it was like I was riding the Harley with like big eight hangers and the bottom bracket being really low. Mm-hmm. Whereas I wanted like to ride a MotoGP bike, high bottom bracket, low front end, and being like further forward. Yep. So. That was like for me the easiest way of explaining it to like I worked really closely with Ben at GT and he was amazing like he was really keen to listen to you know again like something as simple as that and try and make some changes and then I had you know I used a big back tire and then I wanted the ability to run a big front chain ring like a 53 chain ring and needed him to make a bike that could accommodate those two things and honestly like GT I felt that was one of my biggest um, disappointments throughout my career was the fact that they came in like 2016, really supported me, did everything they could, Helen Highwater to, to, to sort of give me what I wanted. Um, and then ultimately, like I never actually got to do anything for them because the start of 2017, I crashed and I had a disappointing Olympics. And yeah, like that was, that's a bit, that sucks for me. Cause I, like I said, my word is, you know, I don't want to feel like I, you know, taking the piss out of somebody and, and I do feel like a bit like that with GT so um, this is probably my public way of making uh, making my feelings known that I, I appreciate everything they did and they did go above and beyond to try and deliver a bike that was capable of winning the Olympics ultimately. Yeah and obviously I mean you're somebody who you know likes things a certain way and um, obviously the you know the system you you had for yourself was working very well and um, so cycling back to the Manchester World Cups a little like you're, you're, go ahead, James. I just want to point out that's exactly what I thought, okay? Exactly, <laughs> oh. Tori knows it. That's exactly what I thought was changed. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. should have put you under pressure then. I should have said. Tori knows. I've said this in the what, past. What your thoughts are. <laughs> I told him to this last week. I was like, that's what it was. I want to know. All right, sorry. Go on. Um, so getting back to the Manchester World Cups, like, did it get harder year after year for the, you know, the expectation you had in yourself? And obviously a lot of people racing in front of a home crowd is not easy, especially when, you're a star like yourself and you want to win and people expect you to win. And so was that kind of, was it getting harder year by year or were the experiences pretty different? You know, was it, was one year maybe harder to win than the other or kind of, you know? Yeah. So I, I will, I will keep this really brief. So 2013 was, um, you know, was, it was my first one. So, you know, there was, there was nothing really, you know, it was just about delivering, um, under the pressure that I put on myself. Nobody expected me to win. I think that, you know, a few people had, had, uh, yeah, they, they put me potentially higher up the pecking order than what I would have been naturally. And then 2014, I was world champion. So wearing the rainbow jersey and winning, that was like huge for me. I, I loved wearing the rainbow jersey and I, and I wanted to win that race wearing that jersey. And then something again that I haven't really spoke about is like the transition from 2014 to 2015. Um, I had all this shit going on with, with the bike and stuff. Um, but I just didn't have any motivation to, um, to train either. Like, I pretty much, honestly, I didn't do like anything that off season, like nothing. And I remember, 
I did a bit of like a secret ski trip with um, my mates over over New Year's Eve, and and I just felt like I needed to get away from like cycling, training, BMX, whatever. Came back to Manchester, and I went to walk into the gym on I don't know like the third or fourth of January, expecting like all of those feelings to have gone. I had like a good blowout, you know. And I walked, went to walk in the gym, and I physically like couldn't open the door to go in the gym. I was like, nah, this is still like not right. So I went to the office and spoke to like the performance manager and I just explained how I was feeling and, and I just felt like 2013 I won the world, 2014 I wanted to retain the rainbow jersey and then I won the overall and then 2015 I just felt like it was like a nothing year, like 2016 was the Olympics but 2015 like it was like nothing. And then I got back into training. Like I basically trained on my own for like nearly eight weeks in like this little tin shed in um, part of Manchester, and it was so fucking cold. Like I remember holding the bloody squat bar, my hands were like sticking to the bar. It was that cold, <laughs> and um, a bit like Rocky esque. But I still didn't have any desire or motivation to train. And then it was ten weeks before the Manchester World Cup in 2015 that um, I basically said, right, I need to like pull my finger out and I couldn't even do a lap of the track at that point like the track had just been changed it was mental and I just couldn't even do a lap like and it was only about four weeks before the world cup that I could actually string a lap together and I think that actually when I look back like 2014 and 2015 were probably the two best performances of of my career um I remember Sam coming over for the 2015 world cup and that for me was like yeah it was like I needed like I love I love that you know like I love yeah he was wearing the rainbow jersey and like he was without doubt like the one person that throughout my whole career like I really I loved racing against because I had so much respect and admiration for him and yeah like we had a really good battle um again I'm really conscious that I can talk and I apologize in advance but this is a really cool story and I think this completely epitomizes the mental mental for BMX so 2015 Sam was over at the indoor with everybody everybody usually comes over a few weeks before or whatever and we'd all done like loads of track stuff and whatnot anyway the saturday the week before the world cup and we literally did my whole session was like 20 minutes of warm-up and then like five or six starts and then pretty much it anyway i did my warm-up and i see sam going up the back of the start hill and he his session was pretty much the same and we walk up to the hill he does one start I do one start, both on our own, and then we both, we're the only two people on the whole, the, the, on the start hill, and the, the track is full, it's packed of like, you know, multinationals, and we both line up, gates four and five, the music, <laughs> the music sort of drops down, everybody just stops and is staring up at the hill, and I remember thinking, fuck, this is the World Cup, now, this is, this is it, whoever wins a start is going to win the World Cup. And I remember, like, I did a, I did a pretty good start, and um, and I ended up beating him. And I thought that was it, done. Like, of like that, I thought that was a massive psychological blow for an athlete to suffer, like, of Sam's sort of stature, um, and then equally a massive high for me that I just took huge confidence from that going into the World Cup the following week. And then, as it happened, um, we raced against each other in the semi final, and. Um, and then in lanes one and two, and then again in the final, and yeah. But I think that when I look back, that was quite a funny. Uh, and it, Sam was pretty cool actually. He's like tried to play some some mind games behind the hill, like imposing himself on me, like sort of getting in my space and stuff. And I I look back now and I just laugh, and I did laugh at the time, but I just think that's quite um, you know like again they're the sort of points and the moments of my career that I really I really enjoy and um, and I miss ultimately. 
That's really funny, actually. Something as small as like winning a game in practice can boost someone's confidence yeah. so much. It's so true. <laughs> but yeah, it's good. I, I love, I love like moments like that. I, I uh, yeah, I, I enjoy them. I think that they carry so much weight. Something so, you know, what could be so. I mean, Sam might not have even remembered that, you know. But for me, like that was a really significant part of my, you know, my my preparation. Yeah, no kidding. And you know, like I said, the fact that you won. Four is unbelievably impressive. Um, so, you won four World Manchester World Cups, and you're heading into into the Rio Olympics. So, I heard you got injured in the off season leading into 2016, and then you obviously you got hurt um, before Rio again. Is that true? Yeah. So, uh, again, listening to uh, the podcast, like you know, it appears everybody gets injured, and you know, me and Anthony have been really good friends. Like, he's probably one of you know, one of one of the best guys on the circuit and used to spend a lot of time with him at the races and um yeah, like so I was well aware of his, his sort of struggles leading up to, to Rio. Um but because I crashed in London and broke my collarbone, when I crashed before so that was ten weeks and then before I crashed um before Rio, I just thought this is a joke. Like I'm not I'm not even gonna make this common knowledge because like it's almost like laughable, you know? And so I crashed in December, just trying to triple out in um, the, on the last jump in Manchester, and I just took off a bit wonky, and I crashed, hit my head, and broke my collarbone. But it was quite, it was, it was a small break. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And then I went to the Worlds in um, in Colombia. It didn't perform how I would like. Came back from there and and like sort of did a review, and I was basically, you know, I just felt like I needed to up the intensity of of um, you know my training basically and, and the efforts I was doing in training. So I, I'd had like a really good week and I was pretty flat. And I remember saying at the start of the sessions, Grant, like I'm, I'm pretty flat and I uh, just need to be careful. And then like we basically said, oh, you've only got like five or six efforts, you know, like to so, like make them really good. And anyway, I did this, the first effort and I went to pedal. I like tap manual this jump and then went to pedal, but my back wheel wasn't down, went over the bars and, um, and basically just went like face first into the takeoff and, um, and like was knocked out on impact, but then bounced and then like hit my head again. And I knocked like basically like all my like one side of my teeth all, all were like smashed up. And uh, my collarbone was just in holy shit greens basically. Yeah, it was wow. that was without doubt the worst crash that I've ever had um, at the Olympics. And I still, you know, I I had like real bad whiplash, and I was convinced I was like I broke my neck, broke my neck, and I kept saying. Like I was on a spinal board at the at the hospital, and I kept saying, "You need to you need to scan my neck," and, and they did, and there, there was nothing wrong. But I was like that convinced because I was in that much pain, like with my neck. And um, anyway, yeah, I had I had surgery again at the drop of a hat through the upper arm clinic that I mentioned at the start that I kept in really good business. <laughs> um, you funded the hospital. And then, yeah, and then uh, and then you know it's just time to go all in and roll the dice and like. After I was getting regular, I've actually got a really, I documented everything because I just wasn't, you know, I just thought this can't be happening again. And I've actually got like a five minute video that I did of like GoPro footage of my sort of recuperation that I think I'll, I'll, I should share really because I think it's pretty, it was pretty cool, like insight into what I was doing at that time. I just lived on the Watt bike. It was like gym and Watt bike. And, um, and then I rolled the dice at four weeks, got back on the bike and you saw my x-ray like it was still I mean my collarbone just still had like holes all over it from where it was just pegged back together um and then yeah like really really simple like I, I even needed like I needed the track time at the Olympics in order to get sort of back technically sound and 
Um, I never really felt 100%. Um, although physically, I thought I was in good shape. Like, I did some starts that were really good. And then I crashed um, in the first moto, hit my head really, really softly. Like, it was nothing. But because I'd had that concussion, like, quite bad just eight weeks before, it that was it. I was knocked out again. And, um, yeah, like, say la vie, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, Tori knows concussions so, all too well. Yeah, I, I feel you, like, bro. I did hear that you said that you wouldn't white line somebody in um, in a motor in, um, on your previous podcast. What are you saying? <laughs> Everybody thinks he's the one that took you guys out completely. I remember seeing it too. We need to get Graf on the show. And like, we would all talk about this. I remember watching that motor and thinking, did Terry just take him out? And then the replay showed, and I was like, oh, he didn't touch Cause, them. Because from my perspective, I passed you and Graf. Obviously, you guys went in the first, top two. And then I high-load both of you and came out. And from my perspective, I actually didn't touch either of you. Mm-hmm. Oh, mate, you, I think you've got chalk on your tires, though, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys, you guys just don't know how to take a corner. You went way too outside. You guys just back off? <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's if tough. I, if, if I see you white-line somebody in the first motor again this season, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to call you out. <laughs> I didn't even white-line you guys. I cut <laughs> under you. <laughs> Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on my Instagram later. <laughs> All right, let's let's get the video. Let's get the video. Let's let the fans decide. Yeah, we'll let them decide. Yeah, we can do a vote. We can do a vote. We'll do a vote. No, in all in all honesty, I was really you know really bummed to see you crash in Rio, and um, obviously from a personal level, you're a good guy, and we've been friends a long time, and um, I know how hard you work, and yeah, I was I was really bummed to see you go down to Rio, and I know how devastating that must have been for you. Yeah, well, I I I wouldn't have won anyway, so. It's, yeah, I think that I think that you know, like I know that Connor obviously had injuries and whatnot, and did an amazing job to to come back from that and perform. I think that for me personally, I think yeah, like I I sort of gone through that purple patch at the end of twenty fifteen, and and just wasn't quite where I hoped that I would be prior to um, to the Olympics. And to be fair, that's you know that's the only reason that I I would you know I certainly would have carried on, and I would love to have given it another crack in um in Tokyo, but. Like these things happen, and, and like life goes on, and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. And you know, I think even you know, even the last few weeks, my life's changed so much. Like I have a baby, and and I still don't know how how I would have felt performing or, or racing with a baby. So I'm like, I just have experienced too many things in my in my career that like or accidents and stuff that I just think things happen for a reason. And yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not one to um, to dwell on it. I just think. You know, you just got to get on with it, and thing, things do tend to happen for a reason. And yeah, there's um, I don't I don't hold any uh, any ill feeling, but I did I did want to call you out on it because I thought it'd be funny for your podcast. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, because yeah. Oh, that was about. Oh, that's probably about booty, wasn't it? Sorry. Yeah, it was a booty. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's different. Okay? It's different. It's different. It's different. It's a USA BMX round versus the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> But it seems like since you've had really good balance in your life, Liam, like you've been able to ha- come off something like that and still have stuff to go back to, as in, you know, a family now, your coffee shop. And we wanted to kind of talk about your Common Ground coffee shop. How did it start and kind of how it's going now? Well, I've actually sold it. I heard that. That's what Anthony told yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, um, again, like basically I, I really wanted to, to pursue like I love the coffee industry and I and I really wanted to do more um so uh, basically I was having dinner at a restaurant um like really close to where I live it's like a really cool um like an old market town that had just been like freshly developed and was like really thriving 
and there was one site that um, it was it was empty and, and needed a shitload of work, but I thought it could could be a great location. And Jess actually, she was the driving force behind it. She's, you know, I think guys go, oh yeah, that would be cool, and then we do nothing about it. Whereas women tend to go, that would be cool, and then they actually like research it and actually do something about it. So she she's the one that, and it was just so happened that we identified this site, and then she looked online and on that same day it came up for rent and we were just like that's weird like it'd been empty for like three years and it was just it was just too coincidental and and basically um we sort of got into the area just before you know a number of other restaurants opened and it, and it turned into a real sort of um, food yeah a, a proper like food venue so anyway we, we opened the shop and it was it was really good we loved it it's it's hard work like managing people and staff and um but thoroughly enjoyed it and then um i basically had gone to, into town and i and i'd already had sort of another another site lined up like once i knew i wasn't going to be racing so this would have been like end of like september time um end of 2017 i'd had another site um like located and i was ready to open another one and then i really wanted to to go into like roasting coffee and i think uh, like yeah, basically do it as like a proper profession, you know, go in, open a roastery and, and like, you know, it takes a lot of investment to do, but I, I really wanted to do it. Um, and then I got the email from, from UCI and that pretty much just, um, yeah, just gave me two very contrasting options. And actually in my interview here, they said, oh, what will you do if you don't get the job? And I said, oh, I'm going to go and open a coffee roastery, you know, like there was no intention to, to carry on with, with cycling or BMX. So anyway, yeah, we did the shop and then and then it just so happened like I moved here and basically Jess is studying um, a degree and and she basically does some like online PT stuff and she she just doesn't have the time or didn't have the time in order to manage and do the shop um, to the standard in which we want and we then relied heavily on staff and there's there's no there's no point fluffing it up they're just never going to do it how to the standard in which you want they're they're a pain in the ass you know like they're just a nightmare they they're unreliable and you know you're not talking of a i don't know a software engineer or you know some or a lawyer or a barrister or whatever you're talking of a barista that is working for eight pounds an hour you know and that's not me being you know derogatory that's that's the reality that these these guys are usually students or they don't they don't see the industry as a career so uh, they're very flaky, happy to move from shop to shop. And anyway, the biggest challenge that we faced was we're not in the town centre or the city centre. Most of the baristas live in, in the city and to get them to travel out to us was, was quite a challenge. So anyway, really long story short, we um, we basically looked at our options and we were going to carry on and, and um, do things, but potentially not have the hold on it like we wanted and, and be able to control things how we wanted. Uh, but then when we got the business valued and stuff, it just made perfect sense to to just sort of chalk it up as a as a as an amazing um, experience and something that we learned so much from. Something that I would do again in a heartbeat. Um, you know, had a good return on our investment and managed to add something to the area. And for me, like there's nothing but positive to have come from um, from that experience. But at the same time, just not possible, especially when Jess felt pregnant. It was just not possible to to do the shop and and me be here. And this ultimately is what I chose to do: was come here and work as a as a BMX coach. Yeah, I think it's unbelievably impressive what you what you two did, and you know the fact that you started the business and took the chance on it and contributed to the area, like you said, and got a good return on investment and sold the business. I mean, it's an absolute success. Yeah, it was it and. Um, 
you know, there was if we were to do it again, there's so much stuff that you learn. And and honestly, like I said, I would have taken I would have taken a loss on the investment that we made, just given like what we learned from doing it. It was amazing. The fact that we didn't and we still got to learn all that stuff was was even better. Um, but yeah, like I think our naivety was like one of our biggest strengths too. And I think that you know when you don't really know like what can go wrong or you know like you just ultimately like i've spoken to anthony loads about it because you know i really wanted to again like help him in my experiences i was maybe a year ahead or six months ahead and i wanted to say to him like when you're in the us like you just need to be in control of like you need to manage your spreadsheet you need to look at the data that you know what you're selling how much it's costing you know the PL, you need to know all that because i think you get quite blinded when you're in the shop and you see all these people coming in and you're like oh i need all these members of staff and i need this and i need that and then ultimately, you end up spending so much on staff costs and, and God knows what that you don't end up making any money. So, it's um, yeah, it was it was a really really cool experience and something that I mean I you know, I still love coffee now and I, you know I'm massively you know it's funny though I don't really drink that much coffee I just like I like coffee in the process but I think everybody thinks I drink about twenty cups a day but it's <laughs> like just two two like, two a day that's it. I think you're 20 a day. I mean, I would. <laughs> <laughs> right, what do you say, James? Move on to the quick shot questions. Yeah, I love hearing these, this all this stuff, though. But, I mean, people have told us we go long. So, okay, we're going to move on to the quick shot question are, segment. Are you familiar, Liam? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, he's a, he's, he's, a fa- he's a friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of the, of the show. show. All right, so, yeah, just make the so quick shot questions. There'll be one word or a sentence. Just, yeah, short answers. All right, first one from Jason Carnes. Any enemies or rivals or someone you didn't get along with growing up racing? Enemies, rivals. I mean, Sam was my biggest rival because I just, you know, I, I thought he was amazing. I used to love him. I think that you know, everything that he did from moving from Australia to the US and going it alone and then creating his own team and just doing it sort of, yeah, he's a bit of a pioneer and I, I just love his approach. Um, in terms of enemies, not really. I think that Probably I think there's thing. too many guys in the sport, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, Sam would definitely have been my biggest rival and um, um, somebody that I yeah I used to love racing against. From Bad Brody BMX, what advice would you give young kids? I mean, like get your parents off your back to start with. I think that's the biggest <laughs> one. Like, um, I think they just got to have fun. Like, I know, I know that this is like everybody said this, but it's just so true. Like, I think that. Just, I mean, I, I have this conversation. This is one of my biggest frustrations with British cycling. Like, get kids on BMX bikes from five or six years old, and then when they get to 12 or 13, if they want to go and ride track or mountain bike or road or whatever, like, they can. And the skills that they acquire are second to none. Um, just have fun. And you know, don't specialize too soon. Just just go and have fun and be better on your bike. And then when it comes to um, racing and building an engine, like, that will come in time. Agreed completely. Uh, from at Nicola Fleming, what have you been doing in your spare time since retiring from BMX racing? Oh, spare time, that would be a dream. <laughs> <laughs> you got a kid now, there's no such thing as spare time. Uh, I, honestly, like I like I said, I, I started this role because I really wanted to deliver the best that I could and um, I have to stop myself uh, doing too much because I, I love it and I want to give the guys the best, but yeah, it's hard work, like doing what? doing what I do as a one-man band with, you know, with like six or five, five sort of, um, yeah, I would say high-demanding athletes, like they're, they're high performers, like Simone, Sai, and then Christabel, Ruben, Yoshi, like they're, they're guys that are looking to go to the Olympics, so they need, they need attention, um, 
So yeah, like honestly, there's not much there's not much time for spare time, but um, I will make time when my family are here for sure. From at JT, JT <laughs> at JT Aguilar seventy nine. Oh, sorry, bro, if I spelled that wrong. Orbit's yep. a girl. <laughs> <laughs> London London Olympic final. Do you think he would have meddled if you hadn't unclipped? Nah. If I didn't unclip, maybe. I could have scraped to, scraped to third. But I think that that bloody step up out of the last term might have shipped me up anyway. I wasn't quite <laughs> adept it on that one. Oh, that, that was, was scary, huh? Oh, that was a tough one. Yeah, that was tricky. Yeah, it was yeah. so scary. I think, uh, I think you would have got a bronze. But like I said, I, I never would have... Um, I wouldn't have won it anyway. I think that you know, Stromy showed how important mental... The mental game is come uh, come main time, but um, yeah, I may I might have been able to scrap a, a bronze, um, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right, from Sylvan Andre. Are you are you familiar? Are you with know him? who he is? Sylvan Andre BMX. I think I've heard of him. He's for me. He's yeah, one of the best guys on the circuit. I think I, I'm pushing the UCI. Like we need to reinvent this, like the, the broadcast and stuff. And I've got some pretty good ideas. I think of what um, what I think we need and. I really want to push for, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on that. Sorry, sorry to go off segment. <laughs> um, it's like, did you watch the match with um, the golf? You know where they have yeah, like, Phil and Tiger. Golfer, yeah, the Phil and Tiger, and yeah. then they had the caddies like mic'd up. I think I think we should be mic'd up. The guys should be mic'd up on the back of the hill. Oh, Imagine that'd be so entertaining. You guys, Sylvan, and that's fed into the live feed. Imagine listening to you guys talk shit behind the gate. Oh, the, oh, the variety of convos we have. <laughs> Talking about cutting people off. Oh, you know who I got beside me, bro? I'm going to cut his ass off. <laughs> uh, but okay, that would be a good idea. Uh, Sylvan's question. Uh, what year in Manchester was the hardest to win? Uh, 2016, for sure. I just... The only uh, one you won out of... The only one you won out of non-lane one. I was going really, really good. I remember doing um, the second moto with Sylvan, and I did, like, the equal... My equal PB to the bottom of the ramp. Um, and then Sunday I woke up and I was just flat, just completely flat. I don't know what had happened. And uh, basically my starts were pretty average all day. And then I had two really good starts. I did a, a 2.51 in the semi-final and I cut Joris off um, in the semi. And then I and then I had a 2.52 in the main and, and then won the race. But that was by far the hardest, I think physically and mentally. Yeah. From Jerry Bradford. Oh, no, from Jason Carnes. Traditional BMX or Supercross? I think it's yeah I think like for me I think that Supercross has just been established for so long and when you know I sit obviously in the commission and we talk about this stuff quite a lot for me like the amount of investment that's been made all around the world to to have a Supercross hill all around the world if we take that away I think it just shows no credibility for our sport and then we just turn it into a joke so I think that the Supercross has to stay I, I, I agree that there needs to be some changes made but um, yeah I think it has to stay fair enough yeah all right, this one's from Jerry Bradford. He says, "How were the what Monterey?" A man. What a man. <laughs> he says, "How were the Monterey High School girls?" <laughs> uh, they were different too. I mean, we talked about being a straight talker, and I'm not sure that American high school girls were too keen on the the straight talking. I remember the specific story. Personality. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have much success. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't too good. Yeah, but it made everybody else have a good laugh. Yeah, I remember. I remember that specific story, but we don't need to go into those details. Yeah, that's off camera. <laughs> Corey Friswick, five five one. Besides your own coffee, of course. Where was the best coffee you have? You've had. Ah, oh, well, obviously Corey's an Aussie, and the coffee in Australia kills me to say it. 
is absolutely insane. Um, but I think the best coffee that I've ever had is um, is actually in the US in uh, GMB Coffee in um, in LA. It's the best, the oh, best wow. that I've had. And they've got a sister shop called um, Go Get 'Em Tiger that's supposed to be even better. So if you're in the LA area, that's that's where you need to go for a coffee. I wouldn't have guessed. That's pretty good to know. All right, uh, from Derek underscore Tupper, what is your greatest sports moment? Oh, easy, winning the rainbow jersey, for sure. Yeah. Something that I I dreamt of as a kid, and I, you know, for me, I I sort of, and this is slightly off topic, but I, I think that, you know, winning the World Cup overall just doesn't have any credibility to it because there's nothing, you know, you don't get a jersey or anything. And I think that that, you know, having success over the whole season is, is obviously a challenge. Um but wearing that jersey is just so special and something that, you know, it's obviously synonymous across all of cycling. So by far the best thing that I ever did. From at Nick Long 64 In 2010, the GB funding was on the line before the Copenhagen Supercross due to lack of results. Then you showed up and made your first main and got on the podium with a second. How was the pressure before and the relief after? That's hard to answer. Uh, in one. He's got a good memory. <laughs> yeah, really good. So like, I think me and Marcus were both top old like you know we needed to get like some really good results in order to to keep funding but to be fair like i think that they were results like it wasn't like i'll go and win or podium they were it was like i know a quarterfinal and a semi-final or something and um to be perfectly honest i didn't actually think about it until well i just went i just i mean i've i pretty much scraped through the quarters scraped into the main um and then ended up having lane four in the main somehow um i think i finished third in my semi fourth in uh, gate four in the main and then i I just had a pretty decent start, but I think the guys around me, like Connor and Corbin, were in two and three, I think, um, and they couldn't have had great starts. And I just followed Stromy around, like it was, yeah, a dream. But I, yeah, I think the funding thing sort of took care of itself. I didn't really think too much about that. Absolutely. Well, Liam, we really appreciate your time. We really enjoyed hearing your story. You're a very interesting, successful guy, and. I think we could have easily talked for a good two oh, hours. Oh, we could have easily. But... Like, you have such an interesting career and such a successful career. And um, it's such an interesting thing to hear about, um, you know, how you won your races and your different experiences. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today and, and tell your story. Thank you very much. And I apologize for, for chatting for so long. I told you at the start, I can't. I can talk BMX all day long. It's a podcast. That's what but... we do. We like it. We like it. <laughs> yeah, good. I appreciate it. You guys are doing a great job. And, um, yeah, I'll see you at the races. Awesome. Good luck to you and your team this year, and uh, um, say hi to the family for us. Will do. Cheers, guys. Thanks, see you, man. Too soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye.